Um, there's a question I ask teens, and I, I've done this with people of various ages, all the way from kind of tween age right the way up to, to late adulthood. And uh, the question is basically you have a choice. If a phone falls out of your pocket, shatters into a million pieces, that's one option. That's obviously not very pleasant. Or you can have a small bone in your hand broken. What would you prefer? Now, young people struggle with that question a lot. Today's guest is Adam Alter. Adam is a New York Times bestselling author of Drunk Tank Pink and Irresistible. The book Irresistible is the reason why I reached out to Adam. In it, he talks about our behavioral addictions, specifically focusing on modern social media abuse, gaming abuse, and the way that large internet companies hack our attention. I think it's extremely important for everyone to understand the science behind social media addiction and to realize that just because over 50% of us are affected doesn't mean that it's not harmful. Adam's currently an associate professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business and is an expert in social psychology, having received his PhD from Princeton University on the subject. There's not many people out there that know more about this topic than Adam. He's pioneering work to raise awareness to help us break unhealthy habits I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. We talk about behavioral addiction, how to break from our addictions with our phone, feedback, the culture of toxic goal setting, and much more. Anyways, I had a ton of fun interviewing Adam, and I hope you enjoy listening. So without further ado, Adam Alter. I'm here with Adam Alter, author, professor, great guy. Thanks, man. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> um, Adam, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Um, Adam and I were connected through a mutual friend, Charles. He's never heard any episode, frankly. He's nothing's ever come out yet, and uh, and so I'm always really appreciative when people you know, take a leap of faith, um, to talk to me. Happy to do it. So you wrote a book called Irresistible. Um, it talks about behavioral addiction. Yes. It talks a lot about our addiction to technology in particular, um, which as you know, people listening probably know by now, that's a major source of interest for me. And I think, um, I personally think we have an epidemic, uh, on our hands, but, I guess for starters, what what is behavioral addiction? Yeah, so you know the traditional definition of addiction is focused on substances. Mm. So the, the substance has to be ingested by the body. It interacts with the brain, with various other parts of the body, and produces certain physiological and psychological responses. The thing about behavioral addiction is that if you engineer a behavior in just the right way or an experience in just the right way, you don't have to take a substance into the body to experience a lot of the same responses from the body. Mm. So, you know, the first real example of that, I think, is probably gambling. And that's been around for a long time. But apart from gambling, where you're giving doses of really meaningful rewards like money, there haven't really been a lot of examples of this until fairly recently. And then, you know, video games... 
And then much more recently, all the experiences we have on our screens have a lot of the hallmarks of addiction or the way we respond to those have a lot of the hallmarks of addiction. So this book is really an attempt to understand what's happened in the last two or three decades, Mm. especially the last, I'd say, 15 years since the introduction of Facebook. And trying to understand how, how the changing landscape and the way we interact with things on our screen, experiences on our screen, has, uh, has produced this new kind of wave of addictions that are much more democratic. So addiction, substance addiction has generally affected a pretty small part of the population, except mm. when smoking was a really big deal in the 60s and 70s. Yes. Um, and I, I, liken, I liken our cell phone and social media addiction to smoking. Yeah. And I think you do too as well. Yeah, I do in a lot of respects. Um, and I think what's interesting about behavioral addiction is it, it's so much more democratic. Like you put anyone in front of the screen mm. and you get you get that kind of behavioral addiction. Um, and it's it's almost universal and it affects a huge part of the population. And now I guess like one thing that you address in the book is, you know, if it's widespread, is it an addiction? Yeah. Look, I think that's a really important question. And it's where I came up against uh, a fair amount of pushback. You know, mm. Some people say, by definition, the term is so loaded that if you're going to use it to describe something that affects half the population, then it becomes empty. I'm sympathetic to that. I think that's important. I think it's it's important to use terms like addiction sparingly or carefully. Having said that, I do think a lot of the hallmarks of addiction are present when people engage with screens, when they use Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and Facebook and go online shopping and do all the things we do on our screens. So... I think it's appropriate. Having said that, I'm happy to put aside that term and just describe the phenomenon or the phenomena, the various phenomena that go along with these behavioral experiences. Mm. And even if you don't want to call them addiction, I think there's still something worth talking about. It's I, just useful for me to use the term. I agree entirely. And and I think I I would actually take the counterpoint of view to your critics, if you can even call if you can call them that. Um, I think using the word addiction is crucial. Um, I think if we shy away from using the word addiction, then people will assume that it's not truly a problem. And, you know, I think anecdotally, many of us see through our relationships um, and our own behaviors that it is a problem. Yeah. Losing lack of agency over my own attention over the last decade since I've been actively engaged on social media has been a problem. Yeah. And I know that others experience this as well. And so I think it's important to use that word. Yeah, I think so too. And for me, it's, it's, uh, it's totally appropriate to use it. And, you know, that's, that's where you've got this double-edged sword because you, you have a term like addiction, which is important because it describes something that is serious in magnitude. And that's, I think, appropriate, as you say. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it, you risk sensationalizing something that is so widespread. You know, you don't want to introduce a moral panic. You don't want to be the next thing saying... Um, you know, TV is going to destroy generations. Books are going to destroy generations, yeah. video games and so on. So you, you just want to be a little bit careful. But having said all that, I've been thinking about this for five, six, seven years. It, it's the right term, I think. Yeah. You know, I think about that a lot. Um, you know, I think what was the I forget who wrote manufacturing consent, you know, about modern media. Mm-hmm. Um, people have been saying for ages that the next wave of technology was going to have more of a negative impact socially than positive right so i guess are we are we luddites <laughs> um <laughs> i don't think we're luddites i think we're not just sort of for no good reason pushing against back against technology i think we have good reason to do it mm-hmm. and so i don't think that's um 
I don't think that's something that we should be concerned about doing. I think we've got to be skeptical and cynical. The, the other problem with this is it's a runaway train. You know, Facebook was introduced and we all signed on. Email was introduced, we all signed on. Mm-hmm. And once you sign on, you know, we all wake up every day to the zombies reanimating. You read all your emails at night. The next day, they're all back, hundreds, love, thousands of them. I loved that uh, yeah. that analogy in your book. It, it's not my analogy. It's, uh, it's one that I borrowed, but I think it's perfect for describing emails, right? What is it? It's, uh, it's e- emails are like zombies. Yeah. You, you kill them and they just keep coming back to they life. They reanimate. They just like, they die and they come back the next day. You know, you never get rid of email. And the minute you get your first email address, you don't realize what you're signing on for, but it's a lifetime of chasing these things. It's crazy. And, and you know, we think that, getting rid of spam, you know, was the solution, but it's actually more than that. Um, I know in your book, you mentioned a statistic, something like 70% of emails are read within six seconds. Yeah. Yeah. It's staggering. So that means that people are literally sitting in front of their computers at the office, start working on something, email pops up, respond to the email. At least read it, yeah. I mean, if you if you have your phone in your pocket and it's it's on it's silent, but it's vibrating. If it vibrates and you know there's something there, you will not be able to focus on anything else until you check it. Mm-hmm. If you're like most people, and um, the same is true of looking at a, a PC screen or a computer screen. You're sitting in your office, the little notification pops up. You can't do anything until you look at what's there. The notification, I, my browser window. I don't know if you have the same problem. It's like, it's so funny to watch the tabs get smaller and yeah, smaller and yeah, smaller absolutely. as I open that next article that I'm going to read. And then you eventually. open a whole new window, then a whole new window. Those are all full. Yeah, no, I know exactly what it's like. It's one of the issues, I think, with like references within a post because yeah. it's like, oh, that sounds interesting. I want to learn about that. Click. Right. And previously in a book, you had to like turn yeah, to the index, it's true. <laughs> the bibliography or whatever. And you don't know how you got seven articles deep following this kind of wormhole. The, yeah. the rabbit hole. It's, the rabbit uh, hole. <laughs> or wormhole. Or wormhole. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's wild. And, and it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, we also live in an age of, um, you talk about goals in the book too. Mm-hmm. And we live in an age of a cult of productivity, I would call it. Yeah. And so email feels like this incredible tool that will improve efficiency. But in fact, it's the opposite. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good description of modern technology in general. You know, everything has been created with this sort of idealized view is that it makes things better or easier in some respect. So you've got Facebook, which connects people much more easily than they could be otherwise Email allows you to communicate more quickly and more effortlessly. Mm. In theory, you should be able to fire off emails without even thinking about it. But there's an etiquette, and then you think about it, and you worry about it, and then there are different ways of communicating with different people, and then you feel beholden because you get the email and you feel if you don't respond in a couple of hours, Mm -hmm. that's rude and so on. So I think the sort of idealized version of technology is, is, I mean, it's a utopia, Mm. and that's why we have tech. But in truth, when you actually start using it and you combine technology with all the kind of imperfections and foibles of what it means to be human, to worry about social, the social implications of what you do, to, to buy into the social contract of being polite and respectful and all of that, it ends up yeah. meaning that technology becomes a ball and chain a lot of the time. Adding, adding um, the name with a comma and then your, your polite sign-off every time <laughs> in a you know 30-message email chain, exactly. it's ridiculous. I mean, I've, I've kind of moved away from that, thankfully. But um, I, I hear you, and oftentimes, in, in addition, when we communicate via email, 
we lose the um, the emotional connection to the person we're speaking to. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe there's like statistics around um, email communication. There's more there's more arguments. I, I don't know if that's something that was in yeah. your research. Well, one of the big issues is that it's um it's very difficult to detect and signal sarcasm. So you think you're being sarcastic and funny and someone else thinks you're being rude and serious. <laughs> so it's it's just a lot of the cues that signal sarcasm when you're yeah. sitting face to face, those nonverbal cues, the intonation, all of that, that's lost in email. So you think you're mm. being just as clear, but you're you're not communicating properly. Sarcasm has been over my head since, yeah. I, since I was a kid anyways. Oh, there you go. So it's <laughs> not a problem crazy. for you. It's crazy. <laughs> and, and, you know, another, another thing about email, it's um, Ashton Kutcher described it as everyone else's to-do list for you. Yeah. So we wake up with a set of goals or some of us wake up with a set of goals and we'll talk about yeah. goal setting um, as well. I, I mean, I think with email, uh, you know, the interesting thing about it is there's this debate over whether you're supposed to respond to every email you get. Now, if you get 10 emails a day, it's manageable. If you are someone who gets 5,000 emails a day, it's not manageable. But somewhere in the middle there, you have to decide what, what the right way to deal with email is. Mm. And you're right. People are inviting themselves into your inbox, especially if your email address is in some form public. I'm an academic, so mine has to be on my website. So it's on my academic website. It's available. So I get a lot of unsolicited emails. That's different from communicating with people on a phone or face-to-face where you really sort of, there's consent there. You invite people in to communicate with you in some sense. Whereas email, it's totally unsolicited. So for me, it's certainly rude not to respond to someone on some level. But when you are spending your entire day responding to emails, and that is essentially someone else setting your to-do list, you, you have to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I'm working in venture capital now and I've been... I've been an entrepreneur on the other side who's sending out, you know, his 30 or 40 emails to investors, you know, a day at times to try to get their attention and then sitting there, you know, for a week, two weeks, not getting a response, following up three times, you know, effectively and being like, why is this person not responding to me? How rude. And now I'm on the other side and I realize that I have portfolio companies that I need to, to work with. I have investments that I'm interested in diligencing that I need to, you know, focus on. We have content to write. We have internal ops, admin. Right. So really, non-responsiveness is likely just a sign of a lack of time. And you know, I came up through investment banking for a couple of years, and we're trained as investment bankers to be responsive. If you do not respond to an email immediately, it's frowned upon. If you do not respond to an email within 24 hours, as a junior person um, on an investment banking team, it's like potentially, um, you could potentially lose your job if wow. that becomes a pattern. Yeah. That's interesting and terrifying. Yeah. What, what, a, what a tough way to begin working, you know, your work life to begin in a situation where you're that beholden from the very beginning, where you feel that every communication, and I imagine there are tens, dozens, hundreds of them, you mm. have to respond really fast. I, I, it's, it's overwhelming. And that's the world we've, we've bought into yeah, and, and how do we, you know, how do we reconstruct social norms around technology such that responsiveness is not um, expected? Yeah, well, it started happening. It's interesting. So when I first started writing about this topic, uh, it was 2013, 2014. So it's a few years ago now. Um, and I'd, I'd float the idea with some people, publishers, and a few of them just pushed back and said, I don't think anyone cares about this. I don't think social media overuse is a thing. I don't think that's really a concern. Mm. And it's hard to believe that only five or six years ago, people were saying that. 
So, you know, things have changed pretty rapidly. Um, people are much more receptive to the message, which is this is a concern and we all need to face it and deal with it and grapple with it. Mm. So I think, you know, the, the, the rate at which norms shift tends to be fairly slow, although you sometimes have these cataclysmic events. Maybe it's, um, you know, it's like Sean Parker coming out, one of the original Facebook investors coming out and saying, turns out we knew the whole time what we were doing and we, we kind of felt bad about it, but really we don't care about you as the consumer. You know, these moments where people are unguarded and say big things like that and the public hears it and they say, oh, this is a big deal. Yeah. Um, Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica is a big one. Now, that's more focused on privacy than anything and, and the lack of consent, but it's all about how we interact with technology and how much mm. power we give tech. And so I think the Cambridge Analytica scandal was a huge one. This whole privacy concerns, echo chambers, um, mm. you know, yeah, fake news. Russian hacking scandals, fake news, all of this stuff makes us skeptical and it shifts norms where consumers start to become much more demanding. And I think that's a good thing. I agree entirely. And, and, and it does tie together, you know, privacy, owning your own data. It's all a part of this massive attention economy, yeah. this machine that's advertising driven so that the only way for these companies to monetize is to keep us coming back. And thus they structure behavioral addictions into their um, their platforms and they call it gamification. Yeah. And so, you know, going back to behavioral addiction, you mentioned some hallmarks. What what are some hallmark signs that, you know, I might be experiencing behavioral addiction? Yeah. I mean, I think the best thing to do is just to say, um, you know, what does it mean to be addicted to something? And am mm. I showing some or all of those signs? You know, there are certain things we talk about, like withdrawal symptoms. You know, if you if you have a phone and you imagine the phone falling out of your pocket and shattering into a million pieces on the ground, how does that make you feel? Apart from the fact that it's annoying that you have to repair it, the idea of being disconnected from everything that's contained in that phone for a lot mm. of people provokes a lot of anxiety. That's a form of, I guess, withdrawal. Mm. Um, there's a question I ask teens and I, I've done this with people of various ages all the way from kind of tween age right the way up to, to late adulthood and uh, the question is basically you have a choice if a phone falls out of your pocket shatters into a million pieces that's one option that's obviously not very pleasant or you can have a small bone in your hand broken what would you prefer now young people struggle with that question a lot some of them say well you know, how much is it going to cost to repair the phone? How long will I not have the phone? Can I still use my other hand to use the phone? You know, like older people think that that's an insult. The question itself is an insult because obviously you don't want a bone in your hand broken. But I think that reflects um, just how much is contained in the phone, especially for younger people. It's a social universe. Mm. Um, it's, you know, a drive to productivity. It's um, being connected to people, loved ones, family and and having that severed is a really big deal. It's like having a bone in your hand broken. So it's a difficult question. And I think the fact that people feel that way, the idea of not having that thing induces what in effect is withdrawal, suggests that that's a problem. Now, if you don't feel that, if you say, you know what, if my phone breaks, that feels liberating, then you're probably okay. If you get into an elevator between two floors, just two floors, you're going to be in the elevator for five seconds and your instinct is to pull out your phone, that, again, is another hallmark that suggests you're dependent on your phone in these very brief moments of boredom. You know, that's, I think that's concerning. Um, and then if you find that your usage is increasing over time, you're tolerating the phone, in effect. You need bigger doses of it to calm your anxieties or whatever else is going mm -hmm. on. That's another hallmark. 
So it's a, it's a whole string of things. Um, and now, of course, a lot of the phones have built into them this feedback mechanism where they'll tell you how many hours a day you're spending and what you're doing. It's fully, so I, 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 you know, I interviewed Andrew Murray Dunn of Ciempo. Um, we were talking about his company earlier. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think it's enough. It's not nearly enough because it's, it's reactive, just like everything else. It's not proactive. So from my perspective, the right thing to do would be to, while it's happening, address the issue raise awareness, create a a counter mechanism to the addictive, um, the, the addiction inducing bells and whistles. Yeah. I look, I think, you know, if it's a 10 step process to getting to the point where you're using your phone in a healthy way, the first step is knowing that there's an issue, you know, you have to know there's a problem. And so I think these seeing that you've used your phone on average for five or six hours a day over the Mm. course of a month, I think is for a lot of people a wake up call. Some people don't care. But that's the first step, and I agree with you. That is certainly not a solution, but it's it's a step. It's also you've got to keep in mind, you know, the fact that companies like Apple are willing to give you that information, that compromises, not hugely, but it compromises their business in some sense. Yeah. Now, Apple doesn't require that you're on the phone all day as long as you buy the next phone and the next phone and the next phone. So it's a bit different from, say, Facebook, where every marginal minute matters. Um but still, like the idea that Apple's effectively saying you should spend less time using our product is anathema to the way business works. So, yeah, and I think Apple Apple's been doing. Um, I think they've been leading as far as uh, Fang, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Yeah, uh, is concerned on the addiction front. Um, one that's not so often spoken about. You know, we always talk about Facebook and Google. You know, I'm. I'm really um, concerned about Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, these little things that they've introduced, these little um, mechanisms, let's call them. Yeah. Uh, you know, most people go into Netflix expecting to watch one, maybe two episodes, and they leave having watched five to ten. Right, yeah. And that's anecdotal, right? I don't have statistics. Maybe one day we will have more statistics, but it, it feels it also feels less harm harmful to the user because it's passive. Um, so it's more like traditional television, right? Which I know people were concerned about television addiction back when as as well, so. right? Of course, yeah. Um, so that's an issue. But going back to this hand breaking thing, because. It's not an insult to me. Um, I think I'm probably somewhere in between the age ranges. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's sad. It like actually hurts me. Yeah, it's sad. I think so too. Yeah. I think if you, you go back 30 years and you say to adults 30 years ago, in 30 years, I will ask this question and teenagers will say, that's a hard question. I think that's a sad state of affairs. That's a sad, a sad kind of development in the way huh. the world works. I understand it. I don't judge it, but it's just, it's unfortunate that we're in that position now. And it's happening. In fact, um, we are trading off the health of our hands for the use of our phone. Yeah. I had a friend who works in social media two days ago post um, on her story (laughs) that um, she just received an injection in her thumb uh, because it was, I don't know exactly what the issue was. Repetitive strain injuries and things like that. Yeah carpal tunnel, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a major concern. It's one of the, you know, people say, what are the different kinds of harms that come? And there are four main types of harms. There are the psychological harms like mm. 
you know, the, the harms that come from maybe anxiety or loneliness or boredom or bullying, things like that. FOMO. FOMO is a big one. Um, the physiological harms, that's things like repetitive stress, um, driving and or leaning over the phone. Leaning over yeah. the phone. So the social harms, not being able to really communicate with people, and then the financial ones that come from massive overspending, not being able to work properly because you just feel completely distracted all the time. And then the extremes in, in the gaming world. You talk yeah. about World of Warcraft. You tell right. an incredible story of... Um, a gentleman who received behavioral addiction treatment and then ended up, I think, how many days did I, I don't know if it's, it was a ridiculous number of days straight without showering. Yeah. It was without, five weeks, yeah. five weeks without just over 35 days. Yeah. Without leaving his apartment. Yeah. Yeah. He basically sat and played the game 23 and a half hours a day. He didn't really sleep much. He started wearing a diaper. Um, he had piles of pizza boxes right up to the ceiling and then he started a new pile. He paid a guy to bring up his pizza boxes. That's basically all he was eating. He put on tens of pounds of, of, uh, of fat and he had been a very healthy guy. He'd been very active. And at the end of it, he lost a lot of hair. He became grossly overweight and was very uncomfortable and, you know, it clearly wasn't good for him on any level. And that's an extreme example, it is. right? And I think people will, you know, will ask, well, what about kind of the average use? But I think that highlights another, another concept in your book um, that really resonated with me, which is want versus like. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So um, want versus like is, is it basically this idea that when, when we start, approaching something say it's a relationship with someone um you know you you want to spend time with them and you like them that's also true of the relationship you initially have with things like facebook or instagram the first time you sign up you're like i want to be on facebook i want to be on instagram and i also like it i'm enjoying it i'm getting something from it this is interesting to see what other people are doing what tends to happen over time though is those two things often separate especially in unhelpful relationships you know if you're dating someone who's not good for you you still may want to be with them, but you probably stop liking them in some sense. It's kind mm-hmm. of a, like a fatal attraction situation. The same is true of, um, of drug, drug taking. So what happens with drug taking is you start out wanting and liking the drug, but as you build up a tolerance for the drug, it's harder and harder to get the high you're looking for. And so what ends mm-hmm. up happening is you really want the drug badly, but you don't like it anymore. So you hate the fact that you're addicted to it, but you still need it. You want it badly. So the separation of wanting and liking is a very powerful idea because as far as the brain is concerned, wanting is very robust. It's very hard to break down wanting, but it's very easy to break down liking. So liking erodes very quickly. And what's left is this horrible kind of shell of a state where you you want something very badly, whether it's to check your phone again, whether it's to make sure you have no more emails in your inbox, whether it's to watch one more episode of Netflix, whatever it is, all of these things, you want them so badly, even as you hate the experience. And I think a lot of us have this kind of perverse relationship now with technology where we want a lot of the things on our screens badly, but they actually are not things we like at all. And I I mean, you know, going down this path, first, as you mentioned, awareness is crucial. And I think you highlighted something interesting earlier, which is when you first started researching this book, people were like, is this an issue? Yeah. And here we are six years later and it's very clear that it is, which is great. It's people like you that drive the conversation to the front 
uh, the front lines, which right. is critical. Um, now, reading your book um, and others like it, I have an awareness of my own, you know, behavioral addictions to my phone. Um, and yet I still participate. Yeah. You know, there are times when I have left a dinner table to go to the bathroom, air quotes. Yeah. And, you know, I'm in the bathroom for maybe 10 to 15 minutes because I'm either checking my email because I knew it was in my pocket and someone was trying to get a hold of me for work. Or even just I'm scrolling through social media. Yeah. Right. And I, I you know, I, I want to think that I'm not alone in that. You are. You definitely are not alone. Yeah. I, I think if you, if you it's could. Great. It's mental. It's, it is. <laughs> it's yeah. But mental. I mean, if you could interview people and get them to be completely open and honest mm. with you about it, I think just a huge majority of people around, I don't know, aged, teenaged up to 30s, I would say, um, maybe even 40s will say, yes, that describes a situation that I've experienced at least once, probably many times. Mm. And even if you don't leave the table to go and check, I think once you get to the bathroom, once you're there, you're like, oh, I'll just check quickly. And then you check and then you're down, as you say, the rabbit hole, you're gone. And, yeah. and then 10 minutes, 15 minutes passes. And it's, and it's as you said, right, it's, it's this unconscious action of first taking the phone out of our pockets. Yeah. Um, and then, and then all of a sudden, you know, 30, 40 minutes later, we've scrolled through every single app possible, right. all of the colorful bells and whistles, no more notifications. Um, I, I even have been in a place where I, I will open my email app. So I remove notifications. And one interesting aspect of removing notifications is I don't know what's in there. So it almost creates this reverse effect. Yeah. This is a concern too, right? The okay. perverse effect of removing notifications. Everyone says remove notifications so you don't keep having that buzz in your pocket that says you need to check your phone. That makes sense. But as you say, then there's a kind of, it's like a box of chocolates. Who knows what you're going to get? <laughs> you know, it's almost more exciting to open your phone not knowing if they're going to be it notifications. Is. I sometimes do this when I'm writing. I'll, I'll shut down, you know, Chrome and I won't have any access to email or yeah, anything. You're doing your deep work. I'm doing my deep work. But then as I'm doing my deep work, I get an hour into it. I'm like, anything could be there. This is really exciting now. And then <laughs> my mind is preoccupied by the fact that I haven't had it open. And therefore, instead of getting drip fed little bits, it accumulates over time. And the, in my mind, the, the potential reward of opening up the screen again and opening up the email p- programs are huge. And so it, it kind of backfires. A lot, a lot of these things, these interventions backfire. One, one that I think is really interesting is Instagram's new, um, you know, you've seen everything, all the posts, all new posts in the last two days. So Instagram's basically saying you can stop checking Instagram now because you've seen everything. But what happens is if you follow enough people on Instagram, that becomes a goalpost. Like you want to reach that point. So you just keep scrolling and scrolling. You say, uh, well, I guess I haven't seen everything yet. So in the end, people spend more time on Instagram. It doesn't actually help you use the program less. It just drives you to use it more. Now, this is a question that I think I've addressed with pretty much every guest. That leads us to, does Instagram know that? Oh, yeah. I, I think so. <laughs> Absolutely. They have to. So are we beyond the point of like, <laughs> this is just, you know, accidental and, you know, a, a um, an effect of the incentivization structure for Instagram? Is it now intentional for these platforms to be driving 
or has it always been? There are no accidents in multi-billion dollar companies. Mm. Like they just don't, they don't happen. You don't have like an accident that affects billions of humans and that is worth tens of billions of dollars. It just, it doesn't happen. Mm. Um, that's my experience at least. And I, I know because, you know, maybe five, six, seven, ten years ago, people like me were being consulted on this stuff. We were being asked questions like, I'm designing a tech program. How do I make people use it for five minutes a day more than they want to? Like, what do I do? What, what hooks do I embed in it? What do I bake into it mm. so that they spend just a little bit more time? And I have a lot of the answers and mm. a lot of people have a lot of the answers. And even if you don't have those answers, all you need to do is A-B test a whole lot of different features. Move the button over here, see what happens. Oh, look, moving the button there means people can't find the button. So then they spend an extra 10 minutes a day. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just these big companies, they don't make mistakes. They don't, there are no accidents. I think, I think Instagram is very smart to say, we care about you. We want you to get off Instagram when you checked all your posts. But obviously they know most people, to get to that point based on the average number of people we follow and the average number of posts, it's going to take a lot of scrolling to get there. Mm. And people will scroll and and treat it as a goalpost. I think so. I can't you know, I don't know for a fact. It's hard mm. to get people from behind the curtain to say, "Yep, turns out that's the case." Sean Parker did that and a few other people yeah, have come Tristan out. Tristan Harris has, has come out and said he has and he was behind the curtain at Google and so that that certainly helps, but um apart from those isolated cases, we just have to get a sense of what we think is going on. And what I think is going on is that these companies are very savvy. So what are these hooks or another word that you use to describe is the juice? The juice, yeah. So in the book, I talk about several of them. The biggest one is something that is very old in the world of psychology, which is just the kind of rewards you give people. Mm. So, you know, the, the kind of reward you get when you go to work every day and you get a paycheck every two weeks, if you are in that kind of job, the paycheck doesn't change in size. It comes at a reliable interval that's appealing to people, but not that appealing. We just keep doing it because it's necessary. The other kind of reward that describes casinos, slot machines, is variable reward, mm-hmm. um, where you don't know the size of the reward and you don't know how often it's going to come or when it's next going to arrive. And that describes a lot of what we do on our screens. You don't know when you're going to get your next email, your next post that's going to go viral on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. You know, a lot of these a lot of these um, screen experiences have this question mark built into them. Mm. And so a big part of what makes them addictive is this, this sort of hunting for rewards. We, we know this from a lot of experiments on even, even rats. You can put a rat in front of a little lever. And if the rat doesn't know whether the lever is going to produce little pellets of food, even once the rat's no longer hungry for pellets, it'll sit there like it's at a slot machine and just keep pulling the lever. Wow. And we are, we are those rats too. Um, so there's, there's the variable rewards. Um, a big one is the structure of goals. So having a certain round number of friends or keeping up a streak on Snapchat or oh, all this Snapchat sort of stuff. Streaks. Yeah. Snapchat streaks are insidious because as they get longer, you have more to lose. And so you become, you care a lot more about ensuring that the streak doesn't die. These poor kids. Yeah. It's I rough. deleted Snapchat. You know, I, Facebook really, wow. They, they went after mm-hmm. Snapchat, yeah. I think successfully. Yeah, um, it, it seems like it, um, or at least um, you know, Snapchat's peak may have passed um, or has passed. But, but those streaks. Streaks, are, it's, it's very clever. You create a streak on pretty much anything. Think about people who run. This is a good example. There yeah. are people who, who engage in running streaks where every day 
for a certain number of days, they will run a certain distance, whether it's a mile or three miles or whatever. When you've done that for 10 days, that streak is valuable. And so you, the 11th day, you might have a stress injury, but you just keep going. Mm. There are stories of women who are in hospital, nine months pregnant, about to have a baby. And they have to run on that day because the streak is a year Oof, long. Wow. Yeah. So there are, there are some crazy stories of people doing things that undermine their broader well-being for the sake of something narrow like a streak. So and so, goals. and and goal setting. Um, I want to talk about that, but I also what you just mentioned about running. Um, identify something important here because I think a lot of people listening will say, "Well, there's also a lot of positives that come out of my behavior." You know, I on Facebook as an example, you know, I find events and I'm able to see where my friends are going, so sure. I can go to those events. Um, on Instagram, I learn about new restaurants and thus I have increased my, you know, new experiences with friends and I book those restaurants or new places to travel to. Or, right. Um, and with running, right. When we use this example, it makes people think, well, running's good for you. Yeah. Right. Running sure. good. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, not I, running bad. Yeah, exactly. Totally. No, I totally agree with you. So it's interesting. The first couple of examples you mentioned, finding events and restaurants, the original version of technology that I think was so appealing was that technology was a utility. It mm. was Google Maps. I think Google Maps is the best thing on my phone. Mm. It's a miracle that I have that wherever I go in the world. Um, weather apps are fantastic. Until your phone shuts off and you can't find your way out of a paper <laughs> yeah, bag. That's true. That's true. So I'm very over-reliant <laughs> on Google you, Maps. Me as well. <laughs> yeah, we all are. Um, but, you know, the utility side of technology, I think, is a miracle. That's amazing. Being able to find things, accessing information, all of that is great. It's the stuff that surrounds that that is more is addictive, the addictive stuff. A lot of it's social, and it's a perversion of, of the way social situations should be and social relationships should be. Um, the example you give with running, I think, also is an important example because with so many things, um, we know this from psychology, from the literature and psychology on all sorts of different things, there is kind of a sweet spot in the middle for a lot of different experiences. So for exercise, you shouldn't sit on a couch every single day, all day. And you probably shouldn't run to the point where you induce stress fractures and you are, you know, giving birth that day and you're running in the hospital <laughs> hallways because you need to keep a street oh, going. God. So there's something in the middle that's the sweet spot that's healthy. I think for, for, for the United States and for a lot of developed countries, the bigger problem is not that we're over-exercising, it's that we're under-exercising. So if having a Fitbit and the thing saying you need to walk 10,000 steps today makes people yes. more active, on balance, that's probably good. And, and I think it's very important to just take a step back and say, anyone who demonizes technology and says everything about tech is bad is, I think, doing massive disservice to the broader message, which is just that we should be more careful and thoughtful about how we consume tech. Mm. There are certainly good things that come from it, but there's a lot of bad, and I don't think we fully understand the bad. Now, to that point, when you say we should be more careful about how we consume and interact with tech. Mm -hmm. I agree. And yet, even with that awareness, we are still being manipulated yeah. um, by these companies, whether intentional or unintentional. And so how, who, where does the responsibility fall? Look, in the ideal world, um, every company that ever made a product would care first and foremost about the people who consume it. So in medicine, for example, the Hippocratic Oath says, above all else, you do no harm, right? Mm. So the first thing you do is you say, what's the worst that could happen here? 
I want to make sure that doesn't happen. That's not how business works. It's not how capitalism works. And um, that's in a lot of a lot of cases, that's okay. Things kind of function and they go on. So in the ideal world, this would be something that either governments through legislation put on tech companies or mm. we through pressure put on tech companies. The truth is, I think we realize now it's 15 years since the advent of Facebook. Amazon is growing and huge and you know Netflix is getting more effective at ensuring that you watch 10 episodes in a row. We realize as individual consumers that we can't rely on these companies to do the right thing. And so I think we're starting to say, well, what can I do? And that's and that's how the movement has shifted a little bit. You know, I I've been railing against the companies that are doing this to us for a long time, and I think we should continue railing. But in the meantime, I want to make sure that my kids, who are one and three, mm. grow up in a world where they have the ability to say, "Okay, you know, I've spent an hour on my screen today. I should probably run outside or or do something different, S- sit face to face with someone." And so that's going to take a double a double pronged approach. So what we describe this as the sort of bottom up grassroots approach, where you have a lot of a lot of um, individual consumers coming together and saying we need change. And then there's the top down approach where governments say that's not okay, that's not okay. Here's legislation that's going to deal with this thing. That is happening much more in Western Europe and actually parts of East Asia than it is here. But it may start to happen in the US too. Um, what are well, so I want to I want to talk about both of those approaches. So mm-hmm. let's start with with grassroots. Sure. Um, friend of mine, Tommy Sobel, started a company called Brick, building healthy habits in relation to your tech. It's right. uh, one hour per day. You put your phone down and you hang out with people in the real world. Sounds amazing. What other behaviors or habits can we cultivate to help us with behavioral addiction? Yeah. So you know, one of the key things I think is that. Um, relying on on um, willpower is really dangerous. Willpower is limited. It's imperfect. Mm. You don't want to have to rely on willpower. You want to create structures and systems and environments around you that mean you don't even have to turn to willpower. What that means, for example, is cultivating a habit where either using a, a tool like Brick or otherwise making sure that you don't have physical access to your phone for a certain amount of time. So what, one thing that might mean is saying... You know, from 5 p.m. till 7 p.m., my phone is going to be in this particular drawer in my bedroom. It's going to be in my bedside table. I'm going to lock it in there and it's going to stay there. And no matter what I'm doing, I'm not going to have my phone. Or it could be something as simple as saying, you know, one thing I do every day is I have dinner. And dinner is going to be absolutely screen free. I'm never, no matter who I'm with, where I am, I'm never going to use my phone during dinner. Mm. And those habits, first of all, over time, as you cultivate them, it's easier and easier to follow them. But also, um, by relying on this concept known as behavioral architecture, by removing the phone from your presence, you can't reach it. One of the problems for 75% of Americans is 24 hours a day, they don't have to move their feet to reach their phones. Mm. Now, if you put something that physically close to you, it'll have an outsized effect on your psychological experience of the world. The minute your phone spends eight hours a day in a different room, it's not going to have an effect on you. That's sort of almost definitional. Mm. So if you can cultivate that habit where say from nine to five on the weekends, I'm going to put my phone on airplane mode. So I'm going to turn it effectively into a dumb phone and I can take photos with it. You're going to have a much more enriching and interesting weekend, I imagine. Things like that. Absolutely. I think um, for me, uh, removing my phone from my person really works. Mm -hmm. I don't think about my phone if it's not on me. Yeah. 
Um, I don't know that that works for everyone. Some people, you know, they go through withdrawal. They do, and you have to push through it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that idea of pushing through it, you know, I think that undermines the concept that this is an addiction that's being, you know, like it, it, it's the, the same way that we, we deal with substance abuse. Right? Yeah. It's, is the response is not to push through it for those people that are truly addicted. Well, if you have an addiction to a substance and you are weaning yourself off, off the substance, you have no choice but to go through a period that, that's difficult. You could treat it with other drugs, but mm. the process of coming down off the drugs so that you, you know, rid your system of it is very unpleasant. There is a process that is hard and unpleasant. And that's going to be true for things like phone use. You know, if you've been using your phone every single day, 24 hours a day, it's available to you and suddenly it's not available, you're going to notice that. That is a sign that you are doing the right thing and trying to distance yourself from it. And so that process um, is sort of a necessary part of what it is to form these better habits and this, to introduce this kind of behavioral architecture. Mm. If you didn't experience that, that'd be a sign that you probably don't have a problem. If you find that having your phone in a different room for four hours a day, you never think about it and you're happy, you probably don't have that much of a problem to begin with. But I think most of us do, and we, we would notice that. Absolutely. I, I certainly do, even though, you know, with that particular behavior, it doesn't affect me. I know when, when it's on me, it's hard to resist. Yeah. Um, so... That's kind of, that's kind of grassroots. That's what we as individuals can do, cultivating healthy habits through behavioral architecture. Um, talk to me about what they're doing in Western Europe and if it's effective or I don't even know if there's been a long enough timeline to, yeah. to tell. Yeah. You know, this is an interesting question. There are different ways of introducing legislation and it's a little bit like drug legislation. You can do two things. You can punish the, the dealers, the growers of drugs, the producers of drugs, the chemists, mm produce the drugs, the distributors of the drugs, or you can punish the users, which is the wrong way to go. You really want to, you know, cut the thing off at its head. And um, what's happening in a lot of countries is the users are being punished, which I think is wrong. So in, in parts of Eastern, of uh, East Asia, kids who spend time in video game parlors past midnight, if they're under the age of 16, their parents get fined. Mm. Now, that, what you're doing there is you're not saying to the tech companies that are producing these games, you should do something different. You're saying to the people who are falling prey to them that they are doing something wrong and they need to change how they behave. That, to me, is a mistake. The kind of legislation that works, though, is the kind that says this feature, this predatory feature that's built into certain tech platforms, we're not going to allow that anymore. You can't have unadvertised in-game purchases or in-app purchases anymore, that sort of thing. Um, in, in France, there's a, a great piece of legislation that suggests that if you have a company, if you run a company with more than 50 employees, you have to have a sort of charter that they sign and that you sign where you say, this is how I'm going to protect you from the evils of, of email. And it's things like um, between the hours of 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., we're going to batch emails. So you won't get any emails from the, for those eight hours of the day. And when you wake up at 6 a.m., all the emails will arrive. Now, that's not ideal, but at least it means that in the night, you don't roll over and say, I wonder if I've got any new emails. It doesn't require that you check in and respond to emails in the middle of the night. It's a step in the right direction. Um, mm. And so that, that kind of approach, that sort of top-down approach, I think, is, is better. 
It's also terrifying to think waking up with a full inbox. It is. <laughs> it is. And then, there are hybrid this. versions too. Yeah. <laughs> I totally agree with you. I mean, the idea of waking up and having like a hundred unread emails yeah. is terrifying, but what a lot of the companies do is they, you know, it becomes very paternalistic where they say things like we batch emails and then we slowly drip feed and drip release them to you. Mm. So we'll batch them for those eight hours. And then every 10 minutes thereafter, we'll release a certain proportion of those emails to you. So you don't bombard it. Yeah. But, you know, none of these are, is perfect. We're trying to deal with an imperfect system. And I think at least there are attempts to think and be more thoughtful. About and, and there are feedback loops, as you referenced, right, with it, with Instagram's two, um, you know, two days of content limit. Yeah. Right. It, it, it creates these new, new behaviors that it are does. Unexpect, often unexpected. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is once you introduce these interventions, you have to monitor the way people are behaving just to make sure that they aren't having a net negative effect. So, you know, going back to grassroots and, and healthy habit building, uh, I wanted to ask you this because taking our phones out of our pocket and putting them in a drawer is only going to be an effective strategy until our phones and our tech is essentially built into us. Yes. Which is on the way. Which is terrible. And I'm pushing against it with everything I have. Mm. (laughs) I think that's how so. Well, because most of the good interventions we have available to us right now involve the fact that we are not physically attached to our phones, even Mm. though it feels like we are. No, the, the fact that we have pockets on our clothes, on many of the articles of clothing we have, is itself the problem. But once you have a phone that's effectively embedded in your brain or under your skin, there's no way to get away from it. I so that's very dystopian. Jo- yeah, Josh Wolf from Lux Capital talked about this on his uh, interview with Sh- Shane Parrish. He mentions how the half-life of um, the human tech interface is accelerating. So first we had these supercomputers and you would walk up to them and unplug and plug in, bleep, bloop, bleep, bloop, you know, right. and, and then we had desktops <laughs> and then we had laptops. So now the computer is actually on our person. Yeah. And then I think it's like from laptop to cell phone was like six years. This was like 25, 12 and a half, 6.25, three point, whatever. And then it went, you know, for a man, the only thing separating us from our phone is, is a sliver of fabric in our pockets. Right. And now we have the Apple Watch, which mm-hmm. is on our wrist. And now we have the AirPods, which are in our ears. And so we are marching at an accelerated pace towards that human kind of like human tech interface where it's truly embedded within us, whether it be AR contact lenses or a chip in our arm or, um, you know, a neural link. Yeah. So we're going we're going there. Right. I mean, you seem to be heading in that direction. Yeah. Is the only solution to that to have regulation against? I, I mean, the, the good thing about humans is that there's a certain point at which we say that's that's weird. I'm not OK with that. Mm. We, we haven't quite got there yet. I think if I said to you, um, you have a choice now, you can buy this new it's called the Apple brain and we're going to insert a chip into your brain and you'll never have to buy another phone. And just by thinking you'll be able to make a phone call and see your email in your mind or something. There'll be some people who say that sounds great, but they're going to be a tiny minority, at least initially. So to some extent, we're relying on this human, this innate human um, bristling at, at tech that seems a little bit too invasive. We're getting close, though. I mean, even even glasses, VR glasses, AR glasses, Google Glass, 
Snapchat I mean, I can, spectacles. How great like would that, you know, like I can size someone up immediately, yeah. right? I can look at you and see your social score. And, sure. You know, your job, your LinkedIn profile comes up. Right. The little QR code tells me just how rich you are. Yeah. It's perfect. And yeah. I don't have to interact with people that aren't, you know, aren't cool. It's a huge concern. <laughs> I mean, right. Obviously, exactly. I'm kidding. Yeah. See, I don't know if the sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a, it's a pretty big concern, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I look. The the reason I wrote this book is not because I'm concerned about phones per se. It's because I'm concerned about what comes next and the next and the next. And I, we always sort of feel that where we are is is a destination. We've kind of arrived. Like, isn't it amazing that we're at this place where we have Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter? Yeah. And, but in five years, there'll be a program that doesn't even exist today that all of us are using. And um, you know, things are obviously going to get more advanced over time. I think we're at the bottom of a very steep, very long, very tall mountain feels like we're at the top, but really this is just sort of a fake peak on the way. Mm. And so if we can't grapple with a small rectangular device that fits in our pockets, how are we going to grapple with glasses and with things that are embedded in our bodies and brains? I think we need to kind of learn how to grapple with tech now so that when we have more formidable forms of it over the next few decades, Mm. we have some pretty well-honed, well-tested approaches to dealing with them. For me, you know, I think that that's a design issue. And so I look at someone like Brian Johnson, who's creating Kernel, which is a human um, machine brain interface. Right. And, you know, in the design, it needs to be about human evolution. Um, And I think you mentioned this in your book as well, that the biology of humans um, just hasn't kept up with the tech. And certainly... I think we can see that the regulators can't keep up with the tech. Right. I mean, watching the Zuckerberg, um, I don't even know what it's called. When Zuckerberg went in front of Congress, it's like, yeah, it was, it was embarrassing. Right. These guys have never, half of them probably haven't even used a laptop. before. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's true. Um, I I think it's every imaginable institution evolves and, and we ourselves evolve more slowly than tech is evolving. And that's the big concern, that it's kind of running away from us. And we're just signing on blindly. And our institutions are signing on blindly. And the people who are supposed to be safeguarding all of this are dinosaurs, mostly old white men who don't understand how the technology works. And they're supposed to be guarding us. They're supposed to be conducting interviews that are supposed to be getting at the truth of the matter and then also intervening and saying that's not okay and this is okay. Most of them don't know even the right terms for half of what's going on. So I agree with you. I think it's, it's a pretty big concern. And we're trying, we're scrambling as much as possible to catch up as, as far as we can. So I haven't read Homo, Homo du, du, Duex. Deus. Homo Deus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't read it, uh, but I think it talks about a future of kind of like an integrated yeah. machine. Right. Have you read it? I haven't. Okay. I was just curious what, what your thinking was on that um, that future. I'm sure you've thought about yeah, it. Yeah, I've thought about it. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's it seems like it's, as you say, it's inevitable. It's around the corner. Uh, I hope we are thoughtful about it. I hope that as we sign on to it, whatever it happens to be, we, we have some defense mechanisms in place, whatever that means. Um, what what does defense mechanism mean to you in this instance? I mean, what are some defense mechanisms? What are some values maybe that we can install? 
Yeah, they're incredibly, the, the physical ones are very primitive. There are things like keeping the phone in another room, but when the phone, as you say, is a part of you, you need more than that as a defense mechanism. Um, I, the, the single biggest one for me is just skepticism, cynicism, um, resistance, general kind of concern. And, and as you approach new forms of technology, you should go into them saying, what is, what is the, if I were designing this, what would I want from people? Like, what could I get out of people with this thing? You know, like whether it's invading privacy to get more information for selling things, whether it's a marketing tool, whether it's a tool for gathering data, um, whether it's a way to capture attention, whatever it may be, I think smart consumers will always say, like, what's the worst thing that can happen when I use this? And, and what am I giving other people by using it? You know, if it's something that's essentially free and you're not paying for it, you're paying in some other way whether it's to give up your privacy or data or whatever it may be. Um, so yeah. I, I think that You're cynicism, yeah, that cynicism, that skepticism, that, that caution is really, really important. That's a big part of this whole movement, I think, is just making consumers who are essentially not really wise to this a little bit wiser. So they say, oh, I recognize, I see that program. I see why, I can see why Amazon would want you to use a device that, response to voice like I, I that totally makes sense they want to gather information they want to be able to hear what's going on as you say things to sell better to you it's useful to know that most of us don't think about that stuff most humans don't think about it but it's it's a it's important for us to be mindful what you know you talk about attention in the book um the average human attention span has declined below that of a goldfish. <laughs> yeah, that's it's this factoid. You know, I people love that. They like it a lot. It's you know, there is no canonical measure of attention. It's mm. hard to get a sense of what exactly attention is and how you can measure it. But the, it certainly seems clear that we don't like thinking, and we don't like being bored, and we don't like sitting without a device. You know, you, you used to be able to leave people in a room and say, "Just sit here for ten minutes waiting," and they would sit there fairly comfortably. Now, if you do that and you take away their phones, they freak out. It's very uncomfortable. Squirming. Squirming. Um, they, they don't know how to think and just sit and just ponder. Hmm. It's hard to be alone with your thoughts. It is. It didn't used to be, but it is now. <laughs> so, so if our attention might be declining, you know, I'm going to flip this to the positive side. Like, are we cultivating superpowers as humans as well? Like, when I look at the next generation, the kids that kind of grew up with tech. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I didn't get a cell phone until I was 14, 15. So I had those formative years without a screen in front of me every day. Every right. day. Maybe their attention span is dwindling. Maybe their in-person social communication skills are dwindling. But what other areas of their brains, what other areas of their persona are, in fact, improving, if any? I don't know if you like this response, but I'd say none. I don't okay. think, the, I think the only thing that's improving is our ability to outsource. We are becoming master delegators. We're mm. doing everything as efficiently as possible. Um, we are making the most of all the utilities available to us and eliminating the frictions that make us human. Those frictions like going to the store and having a conversation with someone as you buy a physical product from the shelf. That stuff sounds annoying to us, the way we've constructed our lives. It's a friction point. It's annoying that I have to go to the store. I have to travel there and I have to purchase something. But for... I don't know, thousands of years, humans interacted and traded and did all that stuff and formed relationships on that basis. And then you trade with the same person again and you'd yeah. form a relationship. And, and it that's would be, where magic happens too. That's where magic happens. All the friction points are where a lot of magic happens, whether you meet your significant other or whether you form a friendship or a business partnership or whatever. That stuff doesn't happen 
when you are eliminating every possible human friction. And, and so I think it's a problem. I heard recently that conversation, dialogue, um, in all but two instances, one where you're arguing and the other where you're given unsolicited uh, advice or criticism, um, is generally a net positive for humans. Is, is that the same for communication via social media or via text or email? You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with communicating by text or by email or any other form or even on FaceTime or Skype or WhatsApp or whatever. All, all of these forms of communication are fine. They're, mm. they're all, though, in some sense, stripped down. So a lot of the channels of communication are stripped away. The fidelity isn't there in the same way. Um, you don't get a lot of the same sort of um, psychological benefits, the social benefits that come from sitting in a room with someone, watching them move and interact with you. That's totally different from, from talking to someone and just kind of getting little bits of drip-fed information. Like we, the way we communicate now on text in particular, you learn very quickly that three exclamation points is the appropriate number for this particular thing. <laughs> you know, like, or ha, ha, ha. Like there's a difference between LOL. Ha. My mom thought LOL was lots of love for Lots like of love, yeah, years. exactly. <laughs> so, you know, everything becomes kind of like mathematically precise. There's mm. a ha-ha versus ha-ha-ha versus ha-ha-ha-ha-ha conveys a sort of mathematically precise amount and of humor. We, we we don't have much time. I know you have a hard stop. Sure, um, sure. We didn't even talk about this with email. The new Google, the new Gmail, where it literally... Predictive email. Yeah, <laughs> where it responds for you, where... It, oh my! So eventually we're moving to a place where basically I won't even need to participate in my email inbox because yeah. Machine Mark will be sending to, you know, to machine Adam and they'll <laughs> yeah. be communicating. And right. Isn't that crazy? I, it's, it is crazy. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the, we're a very long way from being able to do that sort of stuff perfectly, hmm. which is comforting, but we're moving in that direction. There are certainly enough people trying on our behalf. Hmm. Yeah. So, so before you go, what's, what's next for you? Um, so I am, I'm starting to work on my third book. So irresistible was my second book. Um, my first book was about how small features in the world around us shape how we think, feel, and behave. Mm. Um, and Irresistible was about a very big thing that's shaped how we think, feel, and behave. And I'm very interested in change in general. So this, this third book, I want to focus on change and trying to understand what induces change, what produces it, um, how we can deal with it. Humans don't like change, but it's essential. It's kind of ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's the it's, only constant. It's the only constant. That's the old, the old um, saying. And I don't think we understand it, and I actually think we have major misconceptions about change that I think need to be changed themselves. And so I ah, want to write that book. I love it, and I'm excited to read it. And I hope that you come across discoveries that help us change some of the behaviors that we spoke about, some of the constructs that we live in. Um, so I'll do my can, best. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate your work, and I really appreciate the time um, that you offered us uh, to learn a little bit about it. So thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right, man. <laughs> thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. It's been a really fun ride so far. I just get so excited every time I meet some of these incredible people and just love sharing their stories and, and ideas with you all. You can learn more about the show at thelookuppodcast.com. That's T-H-E, lookuppodcast.com. Uh, you can follow me on social media 
at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N on both Twitter, Instagram, um, and Medium and Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook page for the show as well, The Lookup Podcast um, on Facebook. So check us out. Uh, you can also subscribe to our mailing list on the website for more future updates. If there's anything from the show that you want to catch, I've posted that in the show links for you to check out. And if there's any way that I can improve, please let me know. Feel free to reach out. If you have any guest recommendations, please let me know. Other than a couple of individuals who are helping me out in the background, you know, this is a passion project and I'm always open to feedback and any kind of support. I want to thank Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the sound editing and the intro and outro song that he created. And I want to thank Hello There Collective for their support on my social media. You can check them out at hellotherecollective.com. All right, that's enough for me. I'm sure you're ready to go on to your next activity. Thank you for listening. And please come back again next week for another episode of the Look Up Podcast. Podcast.